0: If you're a fan of reading like I am and you've been looking to try out audible.com for audiobooks, we have a link for a free 30-day trial. So go ahead and check out audibletrial.com slash creativeplayandpodcastnetwork. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L.com slash network. Thanks! Cross the hall for tea.
1: Isn't that delightful? So, so, tea at six, o'clock. Well, let's see, it's, um, yes. Yes, Madam will be at tea at six. <laughs> yes, that's what my freckles tell me.
2: <laughs> so,
1: because I don't have my schedule right here, but um, yes, it's four to five, five to six, six, two, seven, 30, and I personally will be imbibing great swaths of tea. I recommend it for all of you. Right, I'm going to talk about some of the efficacy, some of the interest, and some of the danger, and tyranny, and bloodshed, and violence, and scandal of tea. I mean, I didn't know if you knew tea was such a vicious um, encourager of warfare and destruction, but it is. Hello, how do you do? I don't believe we've met. I'm Madame Askew. Who are you? I'm Tamel. Tamal? Tamal? slightly deaf because I'm 137 years old,
2: if you were as old as I am,
1: you too might have lost some hearing. I mean, I actually was at the Who concerts when they first happened. Um, I mean, I was time traveling, obviously, but I have to admit that I perhaps did not wear earplugs at the time. Uh, let my teacup down, as it were. Anyway, welcome everyone. If I have not met you before, I'm, I am bereft that I have lost all of that time and delighted to finally meet you. And I encourage you to move forward because I will do this unmiked. I, I loathe microphones that I have to handle. I do terrible things to them. If they're not attached to my person, then I like run into them or drop them or stick them in my ear or something. It's very bad. So, um, and don't be shy because we don't actually have exploding teapots today. So it's perfectly safe. Now, this is very important. Who here likes tea? Me! Me. Woo! Tea drinkers, excellent, good. Sure. So you all, you've all experienced the power of tea in your life, right? (laughs) Now, I'm going to take you on a wee-swift journey through the history of tea, hither and yon. Now, we only have an hour, and tea is a subject that could take up the entire Encyclopedia Britannica. In fact, Britannica would like to take up the entire subject of tea and, and own it entirely, but more on that because Britannica only got to own some tea. People actually thwarted them on their map, who say to own all the tea. So tea, tea has been around ever so long. It comes originally from China, the only, basically the only place that tea is, you know, a a naturally growing phenomenon. Every place sells, except for one place, one type of tea, it has been transplanted to that land. So China is the homeland of tea, and if you, you speak to china you speak especially to the ancient chinese when they were first discovering tea they will tell you that they were also the seat of all culture and everything that was important and the rest of us could just go bugger off because we're not really <laughs> as interesting as the chinese which was in fact considered the center of the universe at least in china they considered themselves the center of the universe and They disdained everyone else, but of course they had tea, so they could disdain all of us, and they hoarded the tea to themselves. They have a great deal of mythology about the discovery of tea. One of their myths is that there was this emperor who was also a philosopher, and a scholar, and a gentleman probably, but you know with emperors, you can never tell about that (laughs) part of things. And sometimes they get in a tip, and then they start a war. Which isn't the most gentlemanly thing to do. But this, this emperor seemed to be rather pacifistic and he liked to, you know, philosophize and also do some natural history, natural science, looking at plants and discovering things. As emperors well, sometimes want to do, this. they sit around in their garden and they loll about and they ponder things. And this emperor was pondering one day. Feel very well so he's drinking a bowl of hot water because his acupuncturist told him that hot water was the thing to make him feel better so he's dutifully writing his philosophy and sipping hot water and he felt really like hard done by with life and then suddenly some leaves blew into his hot water from a mystic bush someplace and he looked down and he was like oh leaves and my hot water do you think my acupuncturist be upset with me. Well, you know, I guess I could scoop them out. So he did, and he kept drinking the hot water, but now it actually tasted quite good to him. He thought, oh, those leaves, whatever they were. What were those leaves? They're tasty when you put them in hot water. I should do that again. So he went looking about, and he found the mystic bush that blew its leaves into his hot water, and he named it something delightful in Chinese, which I shall not even endeavor to repeat because I don't speak Chinese. We're all thankful that I'm not going to butcher it. But he, thus he discovered tea by like mystic leaves blowing on the wind into his dreadful, dreadfully dull hot water. So he you know, wrote about this in his philosophies about the tea leaves in his hot water actually made him feel better. And so initially tea was embraced in China as a healing drink. And all of these philosophers and acupuncturists and, you know, Kung Fu masters and probably gentlemen on mountains and ladies hanging out with hidden tigers were (laughs) writing about the efficacy of tea, this drink, and how it could heal them in a variety of ways. Well, so then they decided to grow more mystic bushes and you know, they got very uh, carried away, really, and very intent on their mystic bushes. So they would would plant them far from people, up on mountains especially, you know, where it would be hard to get to them. It turns out, if you hoard your tea bush, and you guard it, and you put a little old lady in charge of making sure no one comes close, because she'll like, beat you with her parasol. No tea for you. then you can really keep your tea bushes around for several hundred years. They become quite, you know, rare and quite valuable and if you're Chinese and the British come knocking, you realise that you have this rare commodity that you don't want to just give away willy-nilly to these barbarians who are not the centre of the universe because they're not from China. So, you know, then some fellows sort of sneak into China and their merchants and they go to a tea house, where everyone's talking about the efficacy of this brown drink in this hot water, and they, they take a sip, and at first they thought, they, they aren't rather keen on it. They, this is not sure about this, I mean, how about some rum? That sounds good, rum's good for us. But slowly they sort of developed an appreciation of tea, perhaps because the Chinese were so, you know, proud of their tea, and they, oh, you can have a sip but you can't take any with you. It's like the forbidden, the forbidden elixir began to have a sort of taboo appeal, and so more outsiders wanted it. They started to like export it, but it was very expensive to do so because the Chinese valued their tea. And so first, only oh, the aristocracy could have tea because it was so, so expensive, and it came slowly, to the court of England through marriage with a Portuguese princess, I believe. Or she might have been Spanish, you know I mean? I get confused because I travel so many places and at one point, Spain and Portugal weren't that different and now they are. And I forget what time I'm in and, you know, time travel, very difficult. But when' anyway, this princess <laughs> married someone In the English court, he was a prince, he became a king, as they do. And again with kings, they're not always gentlemen, but they are sometimes scholars, and they are certainly trendsetters. And if their wives have a very, very faddish but expensive thing to do, they like to tell all their friends, oh, the queen, you know, she's so fashionable. She drinks tea from China. She has to have it imported. I had to send them loads of silver. I mean, one small bag takes, you know, like several bars of silver. It's just killing me, but, oh, the queen, she's so stylish. And then his friends are like, oh, well, we have to have some of this tea. Nonsense. And so they import it, and they give more silver to China, and China thinks to themselves, well, this is a good deal for us. You know, these English blokes, they're paying us a lot of silver. And tea seems to be taking off there, but, you know, they keep asking us about growing it themselves. We should really say no to that because then they'll break our monopoly on tea and we should just charge higher prices, which seemed like a good idea at the time, but then the English actually ran out of silver. there's silver teapots that they'd gotten for the very expensive tea they actually had to ship back to China to, you know, melt down the tea to. The silver to pay for the tea. Right? So then they were running out of even the silver teapot. So, you know, the English, being English and rather sneaky fellows, thought, what could we trade instead? Oh, I know, opium. We'll <laughs> trade opium. That'll be good. We have lots of that because we took over Afghanistan. <laughs> right? We took over the Kush. And they grow opium there. We already we put a flag there, so we already own it. They didn't have one. It was really easy. We marched in. <laughs> and we said, "Do you have a flag?" They said, "What?" We said, oh, <laughs> "We have a flag." <laughs> okay, was, so is this? Oh, what are you growing over there? Oh, that smells delightful. What, oh, you're addicted. Oh, we know just where to do and send that. We'll send it to China for tea, because we're addicted to tea, so turnabout's fair play. <laughs> but you see, the thing is that tea does not have the same effects as opium. Actually, opium is rather more relaxing than tea. And when one gets addicted to opium, it can lead to things like not working... Getting up in the morning, staying home, lying around on velvet pillows, chasing the dragon, that sort of thing. And the emperor of that time in China thought back to his, you know, ancestor. He's like, "What would you do? What would Emperor Wan do, or Emperor Wu? Who knows what, what his name was? What would he do? Well, he would tell these English blighters to go fly right." <laughs> so the Chinese emperor said, "No more opium." We're done with that. We're turning you off. We're cutting you off. You can't sell us opium for tea. You have to give us silver for tea. No more. We're cutting you off. And now, at this point, the English were quite addicted to tea. So they were like, now, bloody likely. Well, and our king at this point, or actually at this point, it was a certain queen named Victoria because it took them a while to get so addicted to tea and she said all right well I mean I'm not amused <laughs> we'll have to go to war because sometimes queens are also not very gentleman-like, it turns out. so there was a war and they called it delightfully the opium war Which I don't know about you, but originally I thought that meant the English were trying to stop opium trade. But no, no, they're drug smugglers. (laughs) (laughs) And they went to war so they could smuggle more drugs and, you know, liberate more tea for themselves. And that war, you know, didn't actually go very well for the Chinese because it turns out the English had things like steamships, I mean, the Chinese did have gunpowder. They sort of exported that accidentally. <laughs> uh, uh, that's another story. Um, they were doing firecrackers and exploding like uh, something rather like a crossbow, but with mini bolts and you'd pull back and boom, it all go. It was really effective. Um, but they didn't add steam into the equation. So these big steaming murderous English warships came up to China and the Chinese paddled out in their paddle boats and they were outmatched. So the English won and they got to keep, you know, importing opium for tea. That was the first time. The Chinese were unhappy, it turns out, with this whole invasion and, you know, oh, you're taking over Shanghai, are you? Ah, oh, we lost a town and you're taking more your tea. So they rebelled again. And the emperor went to war again, but he still hadn't gotten steamships, so the English were like, all right, we'll fight you again with more opium this time, and more of your population is now addicted to opium, so you actually have fewer soldiers to throw at us. Should be jolly good fun. And um, yes, once again, they won the right to infest the population with opium in exchange for the national beverage tea. Right. Now while all of this is going on, there are a few souls who are thinking there might be an easier way than actually going to war all the time over tea. Don't you think, like, maybe we could grow our own? But you see, here's the thing. China, in their wisdom, which was perhaps not as wise as they thought it would be, decided to hoard all of the tea for themselves. I mean, they let Japan have a little green tea, you know, you know. The Japanese would do their tea ceremony with their whisk that' be frothy and tea-like, but rather different from what the Chinese were you know pouring into their cups and certainly nothing like what the English were daintily pouring into their porcelain teacups because they'd lost all the silver ones at this point. So you know, and also at this time Japan had closed its ports. <laughs> and said no to all the blighters. They saw what was happening in China, and they said, you know, we're not sure about these English people. We're just going to turn them away. So they actually closed themselves off for a while and said no foreign trade. We're happy to be by ourselves, to be Japan, to have our own civil wars. Thank you very much. We're going to reconstruct the country, drink our green tea by ourselves, Maybe add a little brown rice to it for a little nifty flavor and you go invade China some more because we don't want any of that opium nonsense. So Japan shut its harbors, you couldn't even get green tea, right? So war, and there's a Scotsman watching all of this and he's a botanist and he says, yeah really, I'm Scottish we are all about practical solutions and plaid. And also, our <laughs> shortbread biscuits taste delightful with tea. So we're very, very fond of tea also. Not sure how we feel about these English blokes. <laughs> I mean, they rule us and everything, but we've never been very happy about it. And we're pro-science in, sh- in Scotland. We're we? like coming up with lots of famous scientists like Kelvin and, you know, other people who might have heard of Kelvin. And there are other people like Sterling. And they, so they produced this botanist, this Scottish botanist, and he decided that he would go to the Neary and then the Far East, and then travel through India, and perhaps sneak into to China, over the Himalayas, as you do, and steal some tea a tea plants, though. Not just bricks of tea, a tea plant, because he wanted to grow his own tea. He'd done some research, and he felt certain that India was the perfect climate for growing tea. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes invaders are not good about asking questions. I mean, they ask strange questions, like, what's that over there? And somebody will say, kangaroo, and they're just repeating the question, like, do you mean that? And then the English think they named the animal, but all they said was, do you mean that? And so the animal gets called kangaroo forever. So the English had actually invaded China, not China, but India a while previously, and they never asked what this chai drink everybody was drinking all the time <laughs> in India was. They were just, oh, the Indians, they're always drinking that, you know, milky stuff. It smells all right. They throw a bunch of spices in it. Whatever. It's their drink. I we sip it occasionally if we live here long enough and go native, but we're not going to ask them. About it, and we're not linguists, so we're not doing any linguistic research into the relationship between the word tea and chai and how it came to be, like because they're the same words. Or, you know. <laughs> so they did not realize, even this botanist did not realize there was already tea hanging out in India, the only other place where tea grows natively. So instead, he did a bunch of soil samples, he did some science, he said, I can grow tea in India. I don't need all the tea from China, I just need one rebel-stolen, kidnapped bush. So I will go, I will go across the Himalayas, I will sneak into India, I will face the emperor's potential wrath which could lead to my murder, or execution properly because I've broken the law by kidnapping tea, which is very sacred and then smuggled it out. But he said, whatever, tea is important. This is better than another opium war. So he did. He snuck into China. He found a bush. He stuck it in a glass jar, as you do, with a little dirt, little water. And then he stuck it in a backpack, because that seemed a brilliant idea to him. <laughs> he hired a few Sherpas because that's what you do when you're a Scottish botanist trying to sneak across the Himalayas. And he actually climbed the Himalayas with a tea bush on his back in a backpack and a glass jar because that's very easy. And he, you know, climbed all these mountains. Have you seen the Himalayas? <laughs> they're tall. They're very tall and rocky and there's a great deal of snow and, and they're cold. They're very cold. I personally, I've been to cold places before. I mean, England's a bit cold. Scotland's quite dreary. Perhaps being Scottish, he didn't think anything of the Himalayas. He's like, oh, I've got plaid. I don't need to worry about these Himalayas. I'll just wrap up in my kilts. But anyway, he actually made it across the Himalayas without dying, which is fortuitous. And he took his plaid to this area of India called Darjeeling. Mm. Have you heard of it, Darjeeling? You might have heard of the tea. Darjeeling tea, it's a kidnapped illicit tea stolen from China and replanted in India. It's my favorite tea. It's got like so much quality to it, like I can just taste that taboo have been kidnapped. (laughs) <laughs> and a mysterious quality to it so that's why I like darjeeling also the names quite satisfying So he plants his Darjeeling it takes off the East India Company already owns India and Queen Victoria's already Empress of India because the East and India Empire was having some bureaucratic issues and having a few financial difficulties. They kept, you know, having these native uprisings. They didn't understand. They thought, we brought you a flag. It worked in Afghanistan. (laughs) It should work here. You're ours. You should give us all of the things we want. And the native people were like, really, a flag? You think that's enough? I mean, we've been around longer. Have you heard of Proto-Indo-European? Like the Indo part? Your language is newer than ours. What are you doing? But no, no, the English would have their way. So they asked Victoria and she said, all right. I suppose I can be an empress of another country. If you insist, twist my arm. I guess I'm amused. So she ended up with India and Darjeeling, so now the English did not have to rely simply on tea from China. Now they could rely on tea from another country they'd already invaded and conquered. It was much easier. And while they were growing Darjeeling, some chap sort of wandering around, you know, he'd gone native, he'd been there a while, he was he was actually wearing pajama, which is an Indian word. And you know, like very comfortable, he'd given up his tweed. He thought this cotton stuff is very nice. I'm rather comfortable in this tropical climate. I don't understand what's wrong with the rest of those fellows. And this chai, this chai is to, what is in this chai? And you know, his person who was serving him, his little Indian valet, said, it's tea, <laughs> you fool. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: what? It's called Assam. It's from Assam. It's tea. And so made his way down. He's like, oh, these, they're right. There was already tea here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we went
1: to all that trouble. We went to China and we stole the Darjeeling and we grew that. And there was a psalm here all the time. Well, all right. I mean, whoa, wait a minute. What if we put Darjeeling and our psalm together?
2: Ooh.
1: Oh, yes. In, in, in a blend. And then, oh, Oh, we'll take him to this earl in England named <laughs> Earl Grey. And he's a grand fan of teeth. And Earl Grey said, well, that's very nice. I mean, it's all right, but it's missing something. You're assam and darjeeling. You know what it needs It's bergamont." <laughs> and so he threw some of that in, and he had his own private plan, and he'd sort of doll it out to people. Oh, you mean... You mean the Earl Grey tea that I keep in my bank in Switzerland. I mean, you know, like, I might give you an ounce or two occasionally, I suppose. And he would not divulge the, you know, recipe. He had his own tea blenders. They're called Twining's. You may have heard of them. A little, little company. And they, like, kept the, the secret of his recipe. They still will not tell us all exactly what is in Earl Grey precisely. I mean, not the exact amounts. They're very secretive twinings. But we know it's Assam and Darjeeling and Bergamot and stuff, if you will. <laughs> and there's some varieties of Earl Grey, like Lady Grey also that's got, you know, the same thing. And stuff plus maybe lemon, possibly. There's Earl Grey cream, which is stuffed plus maybe bergamot, plus maybe vanilla, maybe lavender. You get a bunch of different varieties of that. It's quite delightful. I I highly recommend the Earl Grey cream. If you have a problem with bergamot, by the by, whatever alchemy they work with, Earl Grey cream like sort of cuts the bergamot flavor and turns it into crack. Maybe maybe, (laughs) maybe the Chinese are like, oh, Earl Grey cream? How about Earl Grey opium cream? Because turnabouts fair play, and so the English were mad for tea. They really were, and so were all of their, you know, colonists who went abroad. And it was rather expensive. And initially, after after the Opium Wars and after tea became more readily available to people, the average person, before it was quite the national drink, but as it was becoming the national drink, they didn't quite know how to brew tea. Or how to tax tea. Or even how to sell it. And so they'd have these tea houses where they'd once, believe it or not, had coffee. <gasps> oh yes, before <laughs> tea, coffee was all the rage in England. It was really taking off. And hot cocoa too. And they thought, you know, the temperance movement really thought they had a fight on their hand when tea arrived. Oh yeah, you should see the flyers they put out about the dangers of tea. It was so stimulating All the rich people were drinking it And becoming you know Too liberal Too too licentious They were lazing about all day Doing nothing but drinking tea And talking gossip It was bad for good girls to drink tea they should really drink rum instead. It was much better. (laughs) better. Much better. And gin, very efficacious. But this tea nonsense, oh no, the temperance movement was against tea initially. But finally, no, tea wormed its way into all these tea houses. And actually, it was quite dreadful initially because they would just boil large vats of tea. Vats. They'd boil it all day in this huge kettle, and then they'd pour this stuff out that sort of had a resemblance to what they drank in China, but was really not quite the thing was it and they were actually taxed on the liquid amount of tea rather than like the tea leaves so some some brights all thought, you know what might be better economically, and I hear they maybe do this in China where we've been stealing the tea i mean. Well, we've been exporting the tea. <laughs> Is they actually like take leaves and they put them in a little strainer in a pot and then they pour hot water over it for a few minutes and they take the leaves out and they pour the pot and then they put the leaves back in and they do it again like seven times, over and over again. Do you see? Oh, thank you, I need that, don't I? <laughs> You all know who I am, the security does it. So, um, <clears throat> so this, you know, Saul decided that he would sell tea by the leaves. And then the tax agents didn't know what to do with him because they'd been charging people on the liquid amount of tea. And so they had to change everything, but now tea was much more accessible because it was cheaper. You could get a lot more bang for your buck with some tea leaves than, you know, pots of boiled, burnt, terrible brown sludge at <laughs> a tea house. So it started to really get into the households, and even like factory workers were able to occasionally afford what they thought was tea. But you see, Victorians. They're delightful people. They're very you know, interested in economics and interested in making a profit, not very interested in OSHA
2: or <laughs> you know,
1: environmental consequences. They do like um, scientific experimentation and they thought that adding things to tea would be grand. And here's the thing, they, they thought that maybe they could make tea match people's expectations a little better. And people heard of this green tea business from China, and they thought when they boiled their green tea, that it should be this color, the color of my poisonous ball gown. Do you know why it's poisonous? Because of the arsenic in the dye. Do you know what happens if you add arsenic to tea sufficiently? <laughs> Well, it may taste all right, but it's not very efficacious anymore. <laughs> it's very, very green, though. I mean, like, your tea is properly green now. If you add some green, you know, dye, like you dye your clothes with, and it's actually dye made with arsenic, but you've got very green tea. People are satisfied. They think they're getting the real thing, and then they start dyeing. But... <laughs> you know, people are making money off of this nonsense until someone figures out that the dye is actually poisonous and they actually try and put a stop to it because they're like, you know, it's not nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's not very kind to like sell people poison and tell them it's tea. (laughs) You should stop. And it was very hard to get people to stop things at that time because you know, the merchants... And the, the gentlemen who were making a lot of money at trade had developed this whole idea of laissez-faire economics. They stolen the term from French. It's laissez-faire, by the way. Laissez-faire is what we sometimes say, but there's like two s's, so it's a sound. I know that's like very rebellious because we don't really. We're English, so we're not sure how much we like the French. But <laughs> despite that, they had this laissez-faire economics they weren't very keen on rules and they said well why can't we sell them poison we're making a good profit and the queen said i am not (laughs) amused stop killing my subjects with green tea so there were a great many scandals on tea additives things that were made you know added to make it more green or to make something not like tea go further and appear like tea or you know just Take, take a few tea leaves to sprinkle in there to look like tea but then you put in a sachet where there's no paper packets and it's all dust anyway so you don't actually know what you're drinking anyway do you? Oh right, you should make that face. You think it's only the 19th century where tea occasionally gets adulterated. I <laughs> know. No, less than five years ago there was the latest Darjeeling scandals in India, where it turns out they were not selling us Darjeeling, we're not even sure it was tea. There was a massive recall on the Darjeeling, and you actually could not get Darjeeling for like a year, anywhere, because they'd had to call all of it back. Because the tea producers had such a high demand on Darjeeling, they couldn't produce that much, because it's a very popular tea. I mean, Earl Grey, we can blame him, honestly. But, they were just adding things. They were like, Oh, add some of that dust on the floor. It's just going into a tea sachet. They will never notice. Sweep some of that up over there. It's brown. Put it in. Look, it's tea. No, really. That's true, by the way. It's true. They really did have to recall the Darjeeling. I'm not making that up. So it still happens. It still happens. Tea is still one of the most popular drinks in the world. And there's still tea adulteration to worry about. But in the 19th century, some of your adulteration could be more poisonous than others. Some of it would just merely give you like a stomach ache. So, for instance, in California, tea was quite the thing in the 19th century. But California was very far away from the West Coast. And even though it seemed to be closer to China, for some reason they were shipping you know they're tea in. I should say, far from the east coast. Excuse me. They were shipping tea in across that way from England to, to the west coast, rather than from China to California. So the Californian merchants are be really, really grand to harvest this like grass they had growing everywhere and send it to China to have the Chinese package it like tea, and then they'd ship it back to California. That'd actually be cheaper. And then they'd sell that and call it tea. But this grass actually would give you tremendous stomach aches, cramps, and sometimes you would not be able to keep your tea within your body. People were desperate for tea. They'd do anything. They'd even drink horrible grass, thinking that it was going to make them feel better. And when they'd have this terrible tummy ache, they'd say, oh, it could be the tea. Tea's good for you. And then that scandal broke, and they're like, oh, my heavens, do we have to really... Buy our tea from the blighters in New York. Still, can't we just get the Chinese? Oh no, only the English can get tea because of the opium wars. We don't have enough opium to send to China to get our own tea. All right, fine, so we'll just have to go with the expense. Or we could use dung tea. Dung tea sounds good. Hmm, no. If you're in the Wild West, and we are sort of in the West, but if you time travel towards the, the past some kindly grandmother comes up to you and says, oh, do you have smallpox? And you say, I, I hope not, I have my vaccine. She says, oh no, I think you must because everybody gets smallpox. It's the world worst. Here, let me make you some, some special tea. It will really heal you. I have to go up to the yard. Don't look, I'm going to collect something in the yard. I'm going to take it into my oven and I'm going to bake it take from the goat, don't look, and then I'm going to crumble it, and you're five now, you're a child, I'm going to feed you this tea, yes, no, really, they took dung in the west, and they thought if they baked it and crumbled it and brewed it into tea, it would be healthful for children suffering from smallpox. So just remember one thing, say no to dung tea. (laughs) Just say no. Now, that I've given you this little jaunt through history of tea, not necessarily in any sort of linear order, because I'm a time traveler, and linearness is not really part of my life experience, I'm curious if you have any questions about tea. (laughs) Do raise your hands, otherwise I'll pick on you. Yes. What's your favorite tea? Well, Darjeeling, definitely. The one with all the death and destruction. <laughs> yes. It's, bit, it's actually quite good. You know, besides the death and destruction, it's got a very, like, mellow, earthy quality. But don't brew it any harder than 190 degrees Fahrenheit. That would be bad. Yes, yes, you, madam. Um, So you said Assam, Darjeeling, are there any other tea leaves? Like any other uh, different uh, plants? Oh no, so those are the only teas outside of China. In China there are a host of teas. I mean I kind of brushed over that because there are so many. But there's Oolong, Um, which is like considered the pinnacle of tea, like the best quality of tea. that is, if you are into Porsche or Ferrari and you want to apply that to tea, you drink oolong. Um, and then there's something like pu'er, which is actually fermented in aged tea. So there are all these different types of tea in China, but they come initially from the same plant type. It has been grown in different regions of the country. And like Scotch whiskey, or or Irish whiskey, or bourbon, they are aged in different ways. So you'll have a smoking process, a drying process, you know, you'll have a little bit of oxidation that happens, then you'll have how the leaves are treated after all this, are they rolled into little balls like gunpowder green tea, which is called that not because it generally explodes, although occasionally, depending, if you come to my tea duels, you never know. But because it's rolled into pellets like gunpowder, or you can have tea that's rolled into long shapes like dragon's tongues and that sort of thing. So it's the different preparations of the various plants in China that create the different types of tea. So, But it's all from the same original plant. The only... Tea that grows naturally outside of China, that it started in a different place, is Asan. Darjeeling was exported. Now, by China, I probably could you know, point to the whole, like, east and parts outside, you know, close to China, but, you know, outside the southern borders a little bit, to the west a little bit. Um, green tea, for instance, will grow in Japan, but was exported originally from China. So, it will grow in other places, but China is the heart of actual tea, except for Assam. Yes, you had a question?
0: How do you prefer to take your tea?
1: Well, it depends on the time of day and how many people I feel like stabbing with my teaspoon. (laughs) But, usually if I'm having Darjeeling, which is my preference, I like a little bit of sugar, just a smidgen, and a dollop of milk, so I take it blonde, as they say, or white. Um, So not too white, though, because I want it to still be strong enough to stick a spoon in it and have it stand up, right? (laughs) Um, If I'm drinking Chinese tea, like a green tea, I never sweeten green. I never add milk or lemon to it, I just drink it straight. If I'm having pu'er, which is a delightful, earthy tea, and apparently... So here's the thing, in China, they still have a huge art of tea and a huge medicinal catalog of how tea can be healthful for you. If you're ever in Tucson, first of all, come look me up. Say hello, Madam Skew. But then go to Seven Cups Tea House, which is one of the primary importers of tea from China in the United States today, actually, believe it or not. They're delightful souls. And if you get the owner, she's a master of tea. And if you say to her, oh, Madam, I have, you know, pancreatitis or gout or I'm dying of, you know, typhus or something. She'll say, I have the tea for you. Oh, wow. Right? That's awesome. Yeah, I usually go out and go, I have, I'm having allergies and migraines and, you know, my back hurts. She goes, Here, have some puer. You need more puer. I say, All right. So when I drink my puer, though, I add a little sugar, just a smidge because it's very earthy. and I like it a little bit sweet. So it kind of depends on the tea and when and, you know, how, how tight my course it is. <laughs> yes madam Long tea the best to, brew the tea. to brew the tea well you know I always say err on the side of caution so if you don't know a good temperature try not to go over 180 right that's sort of the low end but if you go towards boiling you will actually like burn your tea <gasps> oh <laughs> And it will be scorched. Do you know how many gallons of scorched tea get get murdered every day? Do you know how many puppies are saddened by that? Right, <laughs> <laughs> like, don't scorch your tea. So, um, if you don't know uh, and you don't have a thermometer, which most of us don't, like go around with a thermometer in our tea, I always say stop right as you think is about to boil and then pour your hot water into your teapot and, you know, swish it around, dump it out. Then pour more hot water in, you've stopped boiling it at this point, and then throw your tea leaves in, you'll probably be fine. But, the, so that's like an easy rule of thumb. To answer more specifically, the darker the tea is, the hotter temperature you can brew it at. So if you have a white tea, for instance, you really don't want to go over 180 degrees. You can even brew it a little cooler than that. Um, yellow teas, also, you know, you don't want them too hot. Green is sort of middle ground. Then you get into oolong, which is more delicate than like a full black tea, right? And then pu'er is kind of tea that's already been abused a bit because it's been fermented delightfully. Does anybody know the story of pu'er and where it came from? No, and I didn't tell you, did I? Um, pu'er is the Mongolian answer to tea. Because like the British, the Mongolians showed up in China and they did some invading and there was this wall and they laughed at the wall. (laughs) A wall, we're Mongolians,
0: I don't think that's going to work,
1: no in fact we're going to come in, take over, marry into your family and then you know you'll have another dynasty. But, in the meantime we still like to ride our horses around and we really like this tea. But it's very hard to keep it fresh when it's just in the leaves. So they packed it into bricks and then they'd carry it around in their horses. Well, not in the horses, but... (laughs) I missed the preposition. On the horses, like between the horse flesh and, like, their blanket to keep it, I don't know, I mean, they just liked horse,
2: I <laughs>
1: They were always, like, putting stuff between their saddle and the horse and, and, like, storing it that way, which seems really dreadful to me. But whatever, it developed puer, which fermented initially with horse sweat. But... Today, they do not ferment it in horse sweat, fortunately, which I think is much better. However, Pu'er is one of the most expensive teas you can purchase because it comes in these bricks that have been aged like scotch. You know, and sometimes they're aged a long time. So a brick this size can be $100, you know. Oh, a $100 brick of tea. How long will that last me? Actually, rather a long time, but personally, I don't usually buy $100 bricks of tea. Scotch is another story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So black tea is, uh, it's black because it has a different aging process? It's because of the aging process. And you'll have to forgive me that I don't have all of the details memorized like a true tea master. I'm only like a novice compared to the the real tea masters. I'm a tiffin mistress. I can tell you all about how to dunk your bicky and win a tea dueling. But I don't actually grow and age my own tea. However, it is, you know, sort of a longer process. The darker it is, the more oxidation, usually. Um, and so that is a lengthier time and makes it stronger. Yes, madam? How long do you recommend keeping white tea? Oh, like a minute or two tops. Just like briefly, like you, you blink, and then it's time to pour it. And really, Most of the time, I'm very lazy soul, so I actually throw my leaves into the pot, and then I throw my water into the pot, and then I pour it through a strainer. But I drink so much so quickly, because I'm a fiend, that my leaves don't sit very long in the water. But if you're going to drink slowly, you're advised to use some sort of strainer, sachet, and then you can take it out in between so it doesn't oversteep. Because have you had bitter tea? Yeah, that's oversteeping usually. Or, or your water's too hot and you've murdered your tea. And puppies are sad. Remember that. Um, yes, madam? Yes. Oh. Either of you. I'm happy to answer both of your questions. Um, what is your preference, white tea or black tea? Well, I generally pr- drink black tea because I need caffeine desperately on a regular basis. I actually um, am fueled by tea. That's how I've lived so long. So since I replaced my blood with Darjeeling, I really have to keep drinking the black tea to keep going. But occasionally I like, oh, I want to mellow out a little bit. So, you know, maybe it's 3 a.m. and I'm trying to take a break and, like, hibernate for an hour in my tea part of doom. And so I'll drink a little white tea to kind of take the edge off. Yes, madam. Yes, madam. What do you think clay pots? Clay tea pots. Oh, well, now you're talking about tea porn, aren't you? I mean, <laughs> some of those beautiful pots from China with the special clay. That, I mean, t- who knows about this clay? Oh, well, a few of you are oh, tea fiends too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, this clay actually comes out as like hard mineral rocks, and either you have to massage it yourself for like 10 years. You know, in your spare time, which is all day, 12 hours a day in China. You're an old lady on top of a mountain with your 300-year-old tea bush. And you're like, I'm just going to massage this. And eventually it turns into something you can actually mold into a teapot. Or you can do it in a more mechanical fashion, but which still takes a very long time because it starts out hard. And then you make these beautiful teapots, which are small and and especially, you know, Usually they have pretty animal shapes and whatnot, but they have breathing, living pores on them because of the way they're made. So when you brew your tea in them, the tea actually collects of the minerals and also infuses the pot. So these pots are believed to get better with more use, and you're only supposed to use them with the same type of tea. So you have your oolong pot. And if you're really particular, you have your monkey-picked oolong pot, and your dragon oolong pot, and your golden turtle-leg oolong pot. And yes, all of these names actually have stories behind them, but we don't have time. Just go to seven cups. Yes, madam. Have you been to English Rose House? Uh, is that here in Phoenix? Mm-hmm. Well, it's north, yeah. I, I have okay. not because I live in Tucson. I will be delighted to. I go to Chantilly occasionally. But, you know, they set their air with roses, so I can't smell my tea. Mm. Like, why would you do that to me? I'm here to get my tea fix. <laughs> off the rose. Give me the tea. There more hands. More hands. Yes, madam. Um, when did uh,
2: just the process
1: Oh, well, I mean, some of that's lost in the mists of time. <laughs> the Chinese myth around tea is that it magically fell into hot water. But I mean, like, the, like all the different types of things, because now practically... It's oh, like, everything. You see anything. Well, I mean, I think there's a very long and ancient tradition of brewing things in hot water for medicinal purposes. I'm not an anthropologist, so I, I can't answer that question specifically. But I think you can look at most of our myths, most of our legends, our fairy tales, our family anecdotes, looking backwards at grandmothers telling stories of this, that, and the other thing that they concocted. For many generations, hundreds and thousands of years, people have been throwing something into water and boiling it and saying, this must be good for you. because apparently when we boil the water, it doesn't kill you as fast as when we don't. They they didn't know a lot about germs a long time ago, but somehow they figured out that boiling was a good idea. So I don't know specifically when, but a very long time. And, And there's been a resurgence of tea interest. And so you have a lot more things being thrown into pots of hot water. Some of them are tea and some of them are Saints yes, I heard the word, make the rounds. This is not actually tea, it's an herbal concoction, which may also be delightful, but has no actual tea leaves in it. So if you see ruibos, tea, it's actually not tea, it's a red-leaved bush from Africa. It's delightful, nonetheless, but not tea. Yerba mate, not tea, sometimes treated as tea. Not actually tea because they do not come from plants that are descended from the tea family of plants. Right. Other questions? Yes. Raise your hands again. Yes, you madam.
2: Sugar
1: um, or tea? Do you prefer cane sugar or stevia? stevia is too sweet for me, actually. It, I find it distracting. So I usually use cane sugar. Or if I'm at the Chinese tea house, I use what they give me because I'm a good girl and I'm not going to make them angry. <laughs> I want their tea and I'm not going to war with them.
0: <laughs> so
1: they actually, they have these little rock candies of tea, there these tiny rocks. I don't know how they make, it's like sugar and whatever. I throw it I'm happy and I say thank you. But otherwise I, I like cane sugar, yes. Um, yes, madam, and then you madam. Well, you know, it can last quite a while if you keep it in an airtight tin. If it's not in the sun, um, you know, tea is a dried leaf. If you leave it out in the air and the sun, it will eventually get too dry to be very good. Uh, there's actually a tea that they discovered recently in the collection of the Natural History Museum in England. that was like, I don't know. Really, really bloody old. <laughs> Look, you're nodding your head, you've read yeah, the story, it yeah. was like three hundred years old or something like that. It smelled like hay, they said. Smelled it. like hay. And there are some descriptions of tea at the time. It had a very hay like quality. They aren't allowed to drink it. So we don't know. They think it's probably not good anymore. I say, well, how dark and airtight was the storage compartment? It might still be drinkable. Mm-hmm. Could be terrifying. So three hundred years is probably too long off the <laughs> <laughs> But you know, if you're under three hundred you might be alright if you're keeping it airtight and dark. You had your hand up. Yeah. What time is tea time? Well, tea time is really any time.
2: But, um,
1: but, you know, you'll hear a lot of talk about high tea and low tea and afternoon tea and cream tea. That's actually like any, it's a meal in between, you know, when we'd have, we have, as a, in the colonies, there's breakfast and lunch and dinner, right? But in England, we didn't have anything that fussy and for a long time we'd have, like, a breakfast meal, and then we were supposed to wait all day until the evening for dinner. No snacking, because ladies don't snack. And then people noticed that their children were keeling over from hunger at the end of the day. And this one lady thought to herself, you know, what if just had a little wee snack in the afternoon with tea and sandwiches? that'd be grand. So that was sort of the advent of tea as a meal. It's sort of in between when you'd have breakfast and dinner. It can be around lunch or later in the afternoon. Um, And the difference is high tea is had at a high table. People think it means fussy tea, but no, high tea is the one at the high table. And it's usually like kidney pie and potatoes and tea and like a proper meal or maybe like... Um, steak and eggs or whatever. Low tea is the fussy tea because you go to someone's salon in your best dress and you sit with your gloves on and the tables are all low and covered in things because it's the Victorian era. And you can't pour your own tea; the hostess has to do that. You wait dutifully and she pours your tea. She brings you a little plate with biscuits, and you're like, I'm really hungrier for high tea, but all right. Um, So that's low tea cream tea is the most fussy tea of all because you'll have scones and cream and bickies and other delightful sweets and tea and it's usually again served in a salon with low tables or maybe with the queen and at one minute alright so (laughs) I can talk forever about tea one last question and then they're going to kick us out yes um I'll be mother, meaning I'll be the one who pours the tea. Yes. Is, is that related to the low tea the hostess has to pour? Probably. I mean, I don't actually know the etymology of that phrase, but it stands to reason that because mother was usually the hostess, being the one with the most precedence in the family until her daughters had come out and she decided that her daughters were old enough to pour tea properly, that that's sort of the role of the matriarch. Good question, There, I'll look it up. Any other questions? Yes, Speaking quickly. of tea, yes.
0: Uh, I heard that it's improper to have the pinky out when drinking tea, but it's all proper to have it out when you're taking Tiffin at tea.
1: Is oh, that yeah. true? Uh, there is some school of thought that you're not supposed to put your pinky out while drinking tea. And, you know, you're also not supposed to sip out of your saucer, and, a number of, and you're not supposed to clink your spoon when you stir... Really, you know, I mean, you could be that fussy. You could be the Miss Manners of tea. No one, except for possibly um, Major Moxie, no one's going to cut off your little finger when you're drinking tea if you stick it out. Um, But yes, technically you're supposed to keep it furled in when you're actually sipping. and You're supposed to keep your saucer close to your teacup to catch dribbles. Um, But when in doubt, you know what they say pinkies out. And with that, thank you all for coming, for joining us today. Thank you. And then I say there's a delightful lady here in the audience. She um, works at the Delightful Gaslight Gathering, and if you happen to get the chance to go there in September, I'll be doing tea-duelling with her, or for her, or with her friends. It's a wonderful place to do
0: tea-duelling.